as we continue, you can kind of imagine when you travel to Israel and you go to the place where the Sermon on the Mount was, there's some rocks and some steps and you can almost see Jesus sitting down at the, at the edge of that valley looking out over the people. And as he would sit there, it was a very informal setting. You know, it's not, not a lot like church, like we know church to be. But what the Lord was saying was some of the most paradoxical things ever said to humankind that you can possibly imagine. We don't know if he walked about or if he wandered around from place to place. We're not sure, we're not told. But we do know this, when he delivered the Sermon on the Mount, he was speaking very specifically to a crowd of believers. And in fact, the things that he would say to them would make zero sense to someone who didn't know the Lord. Because they are so unbelievably difficult to imagine. And they actually increase in that difficulty as we go through these first a few verses that we know is the Beatitudes. And so as we turn our attention now to the fourth verse in Matthew chapter 5, remember that each one of these things, each of the Beatitudes as we call them, these things that as the body of Christ should be how we conduct ourselves. They're the attitudes that we ought to be is one way to look at them. They're a path to joyousness and happiness in the Christian walk. But each step builds on the other. And so as we really read them, though we can take them one at a time, they really have a cumulative effect. And much like the things that we call the fruit of the Spirit. So the fruit of the Spirit is love, but the fruit of the Spirit being love is also joy and peace and gentleness and meekness and self-control. Those things about which there is no law. And so as Jesus speaks the Sermon on the Mount, as he gives us first the Beatitudes, Luke's Gospel actually records the, the converse of these things. In other words, the truth told from the opposite side of the coin. And so it says here in verse 4 of Matthew 5, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, the moment you make that statement, I've done a lot of memorial services, a lot of funerals. I've had an awful lot of occasion to sit with people who are in mourning. And though Jesus specifically uses the word mourn here, as we'll see in a short bit of time, our traditional understanding of mourning is not what he's actually getting at, but it is the correct word. It's grief, it's a depth of grief that really, ultimately people who have the deepest sorrow of heart have the type of grief that Jesus is referring to here. We talk about mourning, we talk about grief, we talk about agonizing pain. We would use many different words. In the original Greek text, there are actually nine words that are used for mourn. This one that's used here is the most extreme of all the nine it is the very depth of one's soul. It's as far as you can go 
when you reach down into the very innermost part of your being for something that you would agonize over, go through with great pain, just take a look at it from that depth of, oh God, I don't know if I can handle any more of this. I don't know if I can stand understanding any more of this. If you gave me one more ounce of this thing that I'm going through, it would be too much. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let's ask the Lord to speak to us through these few words. Lord, we are so grateful for the power of your word to transform us and change us and mold us and shape us. And God, we admit that we don't like mourning of any kind. That's just not something that we can wrap our head around. Lord, how you could use that for good is just almost impossible for us to believe. And so, God, we give you this time and pray now that as we sit at your feet that we'd learn of you. God, help us to take the right understanding away from this passage, the correct understanding. We thank you for what you're going to do. We praise you for it. Lord, the results in our lives. God, we want to praise you for the results in our lives as we mourn or as we grieve, as we have that sense of loss. Lord, because it's very specific what you're talking about. You're talking about the kingdom here. And so, Lord, we praise you for the kingdom work in our lives. All God's people said, Amen. The Amplified New Testament states this verse this way, and I don't always believe that the Amplified New Testament or some of the more modern versions are necessarily uh, accurate. In this case, I believe it is. And it says, Blessed and inevitably happy with happiness produced by experience of God's favor, especially conditioned upon the revelation of his matchless grace, are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You see the focus here is on something that is heartbreaking, is tragic, something that is hard for us to deal with in our own selves. The word that's used here in the Septuagint version of the Old Testament Uh, was the same word that was used in Jacob's case as he was having this overwhelming grief over the death of Joseph. Life-altering grief. And it says there in Genesis 37 that the the result of that life-altering grief was that Jacob rent his clothes and he put sackcloth upon his body and he mourned his son for many days. It's exactly the same word that's used in Psalm 51. When David mourned when he had Uriah the Hittite, the husband of Bathsheba, murdered. It's a very unbelievably deep mourning. And in those two cases, and in most of the rest that we find in Scripture, when you talk about this type of mourning... It has a very singular purpose because it's almost always associated with understanding the grace of God. Understanding exactly who we are in Christ and what He has done on our behalf. It's to understand the pardon. It's to genuinely know comfort of soul. 
It's not just to understand pain. It's to realize that the end of that pain uh, awaits the great comforter. The one who understands everything that's going on in your life. That same story, the actual account of it, rather than David writing after the fact in the Psalms, found in Second Samuel chapter 12. And you remember the story there. David is messed up. He has absolutely done the unthinkable. He's seen Bathsheba. He's gone to her. They have been with child. She's going to bear a child. That child is going to be born. And there in 2 Samuel chapter 12, it says in the 15th verse, And the Lord struck the child, and notice this, that Uriah's wife bore to David. God makes sure that we get the point. It wasn't David's wife, it was Uriah's wife. And it was very sick. And David therefore besought God for the child. Now I believe that David's grief was genuine. But it's grief that David should have never had. It's something that came into his life because David refused to do what God told him to do. It was a time when men went out to war and David stayed behind. He was supposed to be on the battlefront, in the battlefield, and he's staying back living a life of leisure. And so he puts himself in harm's way. And notice the depth of the grief. And David fasted and went in and lay all night upon the earth. He is beside himself with grief. The elders of the house arose and went to him to raise him up from the earth, but he would not. Neither did he eat bread with them. And it came to pass after the seventh day that the child died. The consequences of sin very frequently are life-altering. The enemy doesn't tell us that. Doesn't tell us that part. He says, ah, it'll be fun. You deserve it. For all you've been through, it's just a little bit of leisure time. Go ahead and do it. And later when David had heard the distressing news, he arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his apparel and came into the house of the Lord. Notice where he went. He went to the house of the Lord. It's beginning to work in his mind, in his heart. And he worshipped. And his attitude mystified the servants who asked for an explanation. And David said, while the child was yet alive, I fasted and I wept. For I said, who can tell whether God will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now that he is dead, should I fast? Can I bring him back? I shall go to him. But he shall not return to me. And David comforted Bathsheba, his wife. You see, the gospel is the most wonderful, freeing message that has ever come to mankind. Because you and I listen to that story, and we got all kinds of plans for David. And they generally don't include him being freed from that sin, freed from that bondage, given the grace of God. 
And yet, because David did, after the fact, very much after the fact, repented, he went into the house of the Lord. He said, God, I've messed up. He received the comfort of the Lord. It didn't wash away the consequences of his sin, but it washed away the stain of his sin. Just exactly as 1 John 1, 9 tells us, if we confess our sin, he is faithful, he is just to forgive and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is a work that God does in our life that we can't explain. And so that is the biggest difference between biblical Christianity and all of the rest of the world's religions. And though I don't believe that biblical Christianity is actually even a religion to begin with, it's simply a relationship with the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Savior of the world, with God himself. The difference is Christ offers what no other person in the universe can offer. That's when we genuinely repent of the things that we have done. He offers comfort. He offers cleansing. That's why Paul could write, O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? You see, in Christ, the problem that we have is quite simple for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Amen? That's everybody's problem. I don't care how wonderful you think you are and you're in here tonight. There isn't one person in here who hasn't sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Today. Between the morning service is in the evening service. I'm sure that there's something that went on in your life for which you need the atoning blood of Jesus Christ to cover it. Maybe it was some attitude. Maybe it was some action. Maybe it was the lines at all of the restaurants in the general area. I didn't even know there were that many people in Carson when we went to Olive Garden. There was 500,000 inside and 750 waiting to get in. So I'm thinking, it's like, Lord, you know I'm short on time. And you can sense yourself getting impatient. And all of a sudden you're like, well, you know, that guy cut me off. And you're driving through the parking lot. You're like, guy's going the wrong way. And all of a sudden you're thinking things about that poor person that child of God shouldn't think. <laughs> Looked over and probably got his driver's license at Ikea. You know what I'm saying? There are some things that happen in your life. Aren't you thankful that when you mourn, you're comforted? When you really look at your sin from God's perspective, notice I said from God's perspective, when you see it for what it is, and it bothers you, that's when you have the comfort of the Lord. David understood that comfort of the Lord. And so basically he says here, happy are the sad, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. David cried out in the 55th Psalm, he said, oh, that I had wings like a dove, that I could fly away and be at rest, and behold, I would wander far away, verses 6 through 8 say, and would lodge in the wilderness, and would hasten to the place of my refuge from the stormy wind and the tempest. That's a guy who understands who he is. That's a person who gets the fact that they have no good thing dwelling in them. You ever long for heaven? 
You ever wake up in the morning and go, man, could today be the day that the trumpet sounds? Because you mourn over your own fallenness. You're broken over your sinful nature. And the paradox in this beatitude is very, very, very obvious. You see, this is the type of living that you just simply can't do in the flesh. Whether you're primitive or you're sophisticated, whether you're wealthy or poor, educated, uneducated, there is some incontrovertible principle that the way of happiness is having our own way, isn't there? Isn't that weird? That the way of happiness is just basically getting things the way you want them. That's why children stomp their feet and throw tantrums. That's why they lay on the floor of Walmart and just, ah! Over, you know, a 25-cent candy of some kind. We've got to have our own way. And what the Lord begins to reveal to us is, look... <laughs> You may be laughing now, it says in the companion passage there in Luke 6, verse 25. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall weep and mourn. When you really figure it out, all the stuff that you go through on this earth isn't going to be so great. What we look forward to is what awaits us in heaven. Sometimes we try and avoid pain for that reason. Sometimes we avoid trouble and disappointment and frustration and hardship and all those things that actually can help us grow. And very often, you know, when I look at my life, I try to eliminate as many sad things as I possibly can. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, by the way. But there are certain things in our life that are supposed to bring us sadness, and one of them is our sin, chief among them is our sin. We're supposed to be sad over our sin. That basic axiom that, you know, happiness comes from good things is true only in this life. So what did Jesus mean? There's all kinds of mourning. It's all kinds of sorrow, if you will. And there's some very unbiblical mourning. Matter of fact, Amnon, who is there in Second Samuel as well, so frustrated because of his sister Tamar that he made himself ill because he lusted after her so much that he was actually sick from it. He was mourning the fact that he couldn't do what he wanted to do. I would say to you, that's the wrong kind of mourning. That's the wrong kind of feeling, woe is me. Some people take legitimate mourning. You know, there's a legitimate time to mourn. Loss of a loved one. That... That is a time that's between you and God, and God completely understands it. But sometimes that goes on for such an extended period of time that that person becomes absolutely worthless to the kingdom. There is a time to mourn, and there is a time to laugh. There's a time for every purpose. Solomon writing Ecclesiastes, every purpose under heaven. There's a time for it. But to continue to mourn year after year, just incessantly over something that you cannot change is really a lack of faith in God. It's a lack of trust in who he is. You're really telling God he's not sufficient for this particular thing. That would be an unbiblical type of mourning. David actually in 2 Samuel chapter 18 tried to grieve away his sin. Basically he thought if he just looks more sad 
If he acted more sad, that somehow things would get better. It didn't actually work. Finally, King Joab actually rebuked him for, for doing that. Second Samuel chapter 19, verse 5 says, Today you've covered with shame the faces of all your servants, who today have saved your life, have saved the lives of your sons, your daughters, the lives of your wives, the lives of your concubines, by loving those who hate you and by hating those who love you. <laughs> you've taken it way too far. The very people who are trying to love you, you're hating on them. For you have shown today that the princes and the servants are nothing to you. For I know this day that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, you'd be pleased. That's the wrong kind of mourning, amen? The very people that were trying to help him, he, he had a thing for him. He said, look, I, I, get out of here. I don't want you in my life. Let me be miserable. That's not the type of mourning that God wants us to have. And I believe that his judgment had been perverted because of his sin. But there are also legitimate types. There are things that we should mourn over. It's an old Arab proverb that says, all sunshine makes a desert. Amen? So what happens. You don't believe it, go to Victorville. Like there's, there's a cloud every other year out there. Joshua trees like it. Desert iguanas like it. Sidewinders like it. Not so good for human beings. Yeah, all sunshine can make a desert. Sometimes it just bakes things out. And a trouble-free life has a tendency to be fairly shallow. And you can see that in the Hollywood people of our day and time. When you look at those that have grown up in privilege in Hollywood, what do you see? People who've never known a hard day's work. People who've never had to earn a thing. They, they wander around every day and their idea of a, of a bad day is that their chauffeur is late. Amen? You know, they're all saying, oh, so, oh, they lose their total cool. And they're mourning over the fact that, you know, their brie is too warm or too hot or something. They begin to mourn over things that are not legitimate. But you see, for us, life isn't meant to be simply pleasure. Have you ever thought about that in your own life? I believe the Lord allows a certain amount of mourning into every child of God's life. A certain amount of grief that we go through. Go through. And I believe it's for a central purpose. If we loved it too much here, we would never want to go there. Amen? You just, you know, you, and you've met those kind of people. You probably know Christians that are so shallow that they'd actually be okay if heaven never came. Because they're so in love with the things of this life that they're not longing to be freed. As Paul cried out, who will deliver me from this body of death. Those things which I will to do, those things I do not do, and those things which I will not to do, those very things I do. What am I going to do? He wanted to go home. So much so that he would declare, it's better for me if I go, but it's better for you if I stay. We long for heaven. When I really mourn over my life and my own inability to be perfect, because really, as a child of God, it's an interesting concept. We've actually been called to be perfect if we can. 
to try as hard as we can to be exactly like Jesus. And that would be perfection, amen? But all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? So every last one of us falls short of that mark of perfection. And so it leaves us with a certain amount of dissatisfaction while we're here. All of a sudden I'm going, oh Lord, you know, if I could just not do that ever again. Driving down the freeway, and you see, I I don't actually understand this whole concept of there's eight feet I can obviously fit my car in there with people on the freeway. You ever notice that? So everybody tailgates everybody else. Does that make anybody else slightly irritated? It's just me. It's like you try and leave what's called normal stopping distance, which is supposed to be about 10 feet for every 10 miles. So you you should leave like 100 feet in there if you're going 60, 70 miles an hour, which is, that's what everybody does. And five cars pull into that spot. (laughs) And so you back off a little further. And after that happens two or three times, you're just like, I'm tailgating them. (laughs) I am not moving from this spot right here. And then all of a sudden comes a CHP officer lane splitting, looking at you with that evil eye. It's like, what? Yeah, you see, there are things in our lives that we just long to be delivered from. And of course, that's a, a silly one, and there are a lot deeper ones. But I say that because we all have them. Every last one of us in here has things in our lives that we just can't wait to be delivered from. Finally, completely done. I looked at that onion loaf at Tony Roma's and I realized there's four and a half million calories in that thing. Someday I'd like to not actually want that, but I really wanted that. And right now I'm paying the price for really wanting that. We have our human weaknesses, things that we know, oh, I should, you know, I should lay off, of, you know, oh, I should, really shouldn't eat that, I got to go teach, but oh, it's so good. Lots of things in our lives that we can mourn over. You see, most of us, if we really are honest with ourselves, probably don't mourn like we ought to mourn. We're, we're not really into the mourning thing. We're not mourning people, so to speak. That immeasurable divine love that that caused our Lord to weep over Lazarus. I don't know if that's ever struck any of you. But the Lord didn't fake cry over Lazarus, did he? Those were real tears that he wept over Lazarus. But being God, he also knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. So why was he crying? It couldn't have been for Lazarus. He was crying for Mary and Martha. He wasn't crying over Lazarus. Lazarus was good. He was hanging out with Abraham in Abraham's bosom. We don't know what he was doing. But Jesus knew what he was going to do. He was going to raise him from the dead. But here's poor Mary and Martha. They are crying their hearts out. And Jesus is crying because they were hurt. They were upset. I wonder sometimes if we actually get it. 
kind of a shocking bit of news, but this passage isn't talking about just grief. It's not talking about sorrow. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 says, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, with what earnestness, earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow, has produced in you. When you have godly sorrow, it produces something in you. And that's the type of sorrow that the Lord was talking about as he's addressing the disciples that are sitting on, on the mountainside there on the Sea of Galilee. And you remember the first beatitude, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. He's compounding all these things, one on top of another. Blessed are those who are more, now he adds to it. This is Romans said, for in us dwells no good thing there in Romans chapter 7. Jesus knew that. The question is, do we know that? Are we able to mourn over our own selves? Back again to Psalm 51 there in verse 3. It says, for I know my transgressions. David crying out, for my sin is ever before me. One of my favorite verses. I know my transgressions, for my sin is ever before me. Against you alone have I sinned, for I have done what is evil in your sight. You see, sometimes we, we get so hung up on the consequences of sin, we forget who we've sinned against. And it actually bothers God. It's supposed to bother us. It's supposed to create in us a desire to get right with Him. The story of Job is very much the same type of story. You know, Satan's probing heaven, asking of the Lord, you know, well, what about this guy? And God says, have you seen my servant Job? He's blameless. He's upright. There's not another person on the face of the earth that's like him. And so you know the rest of the story. Everything that Job has is taken away from him. Everything. And he begins to question God. He begins to question God's goodness, question God's authority. And finally, God has to square him away. And by the time you get into the, the 39th chapter and the 40th chapter on into chapter 42, there's this long discourse where God simply says to him, where were you when I laid out the heavens? Can, can you control Leviathan? Was Behemoth able to be controlled by you? And all of a sudden it goes through Job's head. <laughs> hey, I need to repent. I've been thinking the wrong thing about God. The problem's me, it's not him. And there in chapter 42, he actually says, I've heard you by the hearing of my ear, and now my eyes see who you are, and therefore I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. He says, when I see you, when I think about myself correctly, when I mourn my own part in all of this, and Job initially was innocent, but Job didn't remain innocent. And as human beings, we look at the life of Job, and we go, well, he had every right to be angry with God. When I think of Job's story, I think literally... Well, you know what? I mean, God did kind of let the hammer fall on him a little bit hard, didn't he? God himself says there's nobody like him on the earth that's as righteous as he is, and then he lets Satan beat him to a bloody pulp. Even when God allows us to get beat to a bloody pulp, he still has a purpose for those things in our lives. He still has a purpose for those things in our lives. And so when we get the wrong thoughts about God, we owe God an apology. We need to mourn. 
Lord, I'm sorry. I thought wrongly about you. Correct my thinking. I can tell you the world isn't going to get a whole lot better. As we're studying through the book of Revelation, as we begin to dig in after chapter 4, we get done with all the seven churches. It's bad enough in the seven churches, but when you see what God ultimately is going to allow in this world, there's a lot there to be going, wow. I thought mankind was getting better. Mankind's not getting better. It's getting infinitely worse, and it's going to get much worse than it currently is. Because man's capacity for sin is getting greater and greater. It's not weakening. And so the deepest need, the most heartfelt grief, this word that's used here, penteo, it's to get down to the nuts and bolts of it. The very depths of your feelings, your understanding of what's going on, and to actually see it correctly. You see, the happiness or the blessedness that he wants to give us comes from exactly what Psalm 32 says, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. That's a blessed person. All the stuff that goes on in the world, if you get concerned about the right thing, which is your own place in all of this, you're blessed to just simply have your sins forgiven. And whatever else happens from there, maybe you get a hundred years of really bad stuff here on this earth. But that, in light of eternity, is going to be a fairly small price that you're going to pay. Whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, whose spirit has no deceit, no guile. You see, when we actually look at ourselves correctly, when we realize that, look, I need to worry about me. We get awfully concerned and worry about other people a lot, don't we? When you talk to teenagers, they're always about well, you know, he got by with this, or she got by with that, and I did that, and I got in trouble. The fact of the matter is, nobody gets by with anything. God sees absolutely everything. He's not fooled by it. And so if you mourn correctly over your own sin, you can be happy. If you're sad that somebody else got the sin and you didn't, you're not going to be happy. If someone else has a liberty that you don't have, that's not going to make you happy. What's going to make you happy is knowing that you're okay with God. You're good with the Lord. I'm good with the Lord. And frankly, where sin exists in great measure, happiness does not. And until that sin is forgiven, you have to deal with it. Probably all of you growing up have your own story of something that you did during your childhood and I'm not asking no confession time here. But something you did in your childhood, you knew it was patently wrong. You did something you were told directly, don't do this, and you did it anyway. And for a short period of time, you got away with it, right? Whether it was, you know, you, you took the cookies, you, you, know, you did as I did, and you lit the hillside in your backyard on fire. Yeah. Boys and matches. Worse yet, boys whose fathers give them fireworks that are illegal in San Diego County and tell them to have a good day. You see, I had somebody to blame. Well, he gave me the firecrackers. And there it is. The blaze is going. Here comes the fire truck down your street. And you're like, oh, 
I'm dead, I'm dead, I'm dead. And if you're like me, you sit in the garage. It's back when washing machines were almost always in the garage on top of the washing machine waiting for death. You knew that this, the death sentence was coming from burning up the tumbleweeds in your backyard. And you sit there and you sit there and one day goes by, two days go by, and you're sure that they're just building up a case so that they can throw you in prison for the rest of your life. And you just agonize, like, oh. Why? Why do you feel like that? Because it's unconfessed and it's unforgiven. You're carrying it around. You're not free of it. You still own it. It's still yours. And then all of a sudden, that issue is cleared up. And you're like, yes. I'm not going to kid jail. And your heart is lifted because you were mourning over the fact that you did something wrong. And a result is, yep, I did it. We taped the firecrackers together and twisted it. We threw them and they blew up. And one went off, all three of them went off in the road and one went into the weeds. And you confess it and it, it's all okay. It's over. It's done. You confess your sin, you're sorry for it. It's past history. And it's true in God's economy. If we confess he's faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse us from the unrighteousness, he wipes away the things that really pain our hearts. Why James there in James chapter 4 says, cleanse your hands, purify your hearts. It says, actually there, be miserable and mourn, weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy into gloom. Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord and then he'll lift you up. Let God do what God needs to do in our lives. You know, a little bit of mourning is a very, very good thing. You have two choices in life. You can e- either take pleasure in wickedness or you can take pleasure in righteousness. If you take pleasure in righteousness, then you're going to actually be upset about the things that you shouldn't do that you do. It's going to cause you grief. I always tell people when they ask me, well, they'll, they'll say something like, well, how do I know, you know that my, my sins have been forgiven? I said, are you sorry for them? And they'll usually say, well, yeah. If they tell me no, I said, they're still yours. If you're upset about what you have done before the Lord, then you're probably okay with God. But if you're not upset about it, you have a reason to not be happy. Because you don't know. You haven't confessed it. Sometimes we rejoice in the wrong things. Proverbs 17 says you know, that joyfulness or happiness is, is good medicine. That's true. But happiness over getting away with sin is not the same. And there are people who are happy about having gotten away with some kind of sinful behavior. Don't let that be you. What he's saying was, be sorry where you should be sorry. Take away that little badge of pride that we get. You know, back in the Boy Scouts, we used to get, you know, merit badges for virtually everything. You get it from knot tying and marksmanship and fishing and hiking and all kinds of stuff. In human life, we get merit badges for things like pride and arrogance and stupidity. The human condition says, wow, yeah, we kind of appreciate that because 
all of us want to be a little better than the next guy. So when somebody stumbles and falls, we're like, ah, well, you know, I'm better than him. I'm better than her. Again, don't let that be you. Mourn over your stuff. And God will lift you up. God will restore that joy and give you happiness. That's why there in Romans 7, it says what it says. Things that I do, I don't even understand. I'm doing the things that I hate. But as Paul gets to the end of that chapter, he said something pretty amazing. He said, for I know that in me dwells no good thing. That is my flesh. Those things which I will to do, sometimes I don't do those things. Those things that I will not to do, those are the things I do. God wants to clear that up in our lives. He wants us to mourn over the problems that we create in our own lives. And so Jesus, as he says these things, says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What a wonderful principle to live by. Because when we see things correctly, the way God wants us to see them, then he takes care of our problem. He loves to clean up our messes when we confess them. It's not that he wants us to do those things, but he's the only one that can take care of the condition that exists once we've done what we've done. He has to clean it up. He has to forgive us. While we're in these bodies, just as Paul said, we do groan. I'd rather be absent from body and present with the Lord. But while we're here, if you want to have a whole bunch of happiness, be mournful over the things that disappoint God. Let him have them. Just say, Lord, I'm sorry. I'm genuinely sorry. Because we're deceiving ourselves. The truth's not in us, as John said. If we say that we have no sin, it's the plain truth of it. All of us do. The question is, what do you do with it? What Jesus said was, mourn over it. And then you have the promise of Romans chapter 5. It says, moreover, the law entered in that the, the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. So that sin reigned in death, but so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It's all about letting God have our mistakes and saying, God, I don't want to be like that anymore. Clean me up. Make me happy. Amen? Good to have the prayer team. Some folks come up. Worship team's going to come back up. Maybe you came tonight. There's just some things that you need to let the Lord have. It's a good time to do it. Maybe you have somebody in your life that you need to pray for that they would actually have those things revealed in their life. Come do that. Maybe you just need to sit and worship, stand and worship. Maybe you just need to praise Him because you're good, you're golden. You and God are squared up. That you praise God because you're a happy person. Blessed is the man, blessed is the woman whose sins are forgiven. Amen? Let's pray.
Father, so grateful. Lord, we would love to have been in that group on the mount as you, Jesus, spoke these things. Lord, we pray that you just convict us and convince us of these truths. Lord, help us to really care about how we feel about our sin. God, help us to mourn over it. Help us to hate it. Help us to do as your word says, to flee, to resist. Lord, we're so grateful for your love for us, Lord. Thank you for just striving with us mile after mile after mile and thing after thing. Lord, thank you that your mercies are new every morning, that your long-suffering nature knows no bounds, has no end. And that, God, if we just simply give you our sin, Lord, you'll give us the righteousness of Christ. We love you. We praise you. We bless you. We thank you for tonight. All God's people said, amen.